Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. morning. I feel like we've had enough church already. This is amazing. I'm just going to close us and be dismiss us all. This is an incredible morning and a great reminder of why we have a collective body of believers, why we get together and encourage one another and, and, uh, and be shaped by one another's testimonies. As we heard from Floyd, who's one of our elders, we get, get encouraged to move forward in ministry like Pastor Gary was encouraging us to do. And so it's just an incredible thing to be a part of. And uh, I just want to echo Pastor Gary's sentiment to those of you who are watching online and can be here. You're missing out. And I'm not going to guilt you or shame you, but you should be here. So anyway, 
It's just different when you're in the room. And those that wish they could be here who can't, and there are some of those, and we know their circumstances, they would echo that sentiment as well. They miss being able to be with God's people in person. So uh, anyway, that's uh, enough of that. Thank you, uh, Sue Brochu, for an incredible reading. Appreciate uh, that. And I, although I did ask her to do it in James Earl Jones' voice, and she did not comply, disobeying the request of her pastor, but that's okay. She's too sweet to do something like that. So uh, I also want to thank Pastor Tom for, for last week as well. Um, I'm just so blessed to have such a deep bench, as they say, and uh, afforded me the opportunity to um, be away and to um, participate in a conference. I've never been out west. I don't get out much. And so I got to get on a jet plane and go all the way over to California and be with the Free Church for their um, biannual conference, which was really um, needed for me. I, I like, like all of you, my world has shrunk considerably over the last several years, and so much so that I didn't even realize how much perspective I had lost on all that the Lord is doing. And so just being around so many uh, faithful uh, leaders and the movement that we belong to, I was very proud to be a part of the Evangelical Free Church. And some of you, I'm probably perhaps uh, several of you are not familiar with what an Evangelical Free Church is. And that's part of what we cover in our membership courses and things along those lines, but also just discovering the very, the many ministries that they promote and the ways that they um, help the church. We as a, as an associated church with the free church have benefited greatly from their ministry to us. So it was just an incredible opportunity and, and uh, I know that we were all blessed um, by Pastor Tom's message as well. So I thanks to, uh, to the staff who allows those kinds of things to happen. Well, um, no doubt most of you have heard the name John Newton. And that story, the story of John Newton and all that he accomplished and what he's famous for is is so repetitive in church circles that it almost becomes cliche. But somehow, the more we remind ourselves of who John Newton was and what took place, uh, it does breathe some uh, some fresh air into his legacy. And so at the risk of being somewhat repetitive, I just wanted to remind us of this incredible individual who early in his years was a very raucous, rebellious free-living kind of young man, found his way to the slave trade to take advantage of it and worked on slave ships and crossed a few um, or double-crossed a few people because he was a, a calculated risk-taker in that sense. And so he um, found himself a slave on somebody's ship and then he righted his wrongs, if we can say, and he eventually ended up owning his own slave ship and everything. And all of this was John Newton's testimony of being so far away from the things of God until the Lord started getting a hold of him, almost like the Apostle Paul through near shipwreck from a tremendous storm that he was experiencing, some uh, very critical materials of Christ's um, truth in the gospel that he was reading. And he ended up surrendering his heart to the Lord and turning things over completely. And his tombstone at the St. Peter and St. Paul's Church in England reads that John Newton, clerk, once an, an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. These are fitting words coming from the man who would who had penned 
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I'm amazed that even today as I preside over various funerals and graveside services and things that people in this generation still request amazing grace as a hymn to be played or sung at their loved one's funeral. And maybe it's just because it's tradition and tradition brings us comfort. Or maybe it just harkens us back to some olden days. But I also think that there's somehow some glimpse of an inner craving that if the truths of that hymn were actually realized that my life could actually be restored and redeemed, that I could be different from the person that I am now. There's something about the amazing power of the words of that hymn that I think draw out a longing in each soul that God could actually transform me. We've gotten away from the word conversion when we talk about coming to Christ or accepting Jesus into our hearts. But conversion is really at the heart of all that Jesus does in our lives. Conversion is a process of changing something from one form and moving it into a different form. This is precisely what the life of Jesus has the power to do, to fundamentally change who we are at the core, much like John Newton and just like Saul that we're, that we've heard about already in our text this morning. Saul is perhaps the most powerful story of conversion in all of church history. Not just because of the nature of who he was to who he became, that is completely radical as well, but also effectually because Paul became the triumphant leader of the church when he was on the other end, the, the antagonist and the zealot who was persecuting and seeking to destroy the church. It's incredible, the turnaround. And apart from the resurrection of Jesus, apart from the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Paul's conversion is perhaps the most monumental event in church history as well. Now, though Paul's conversion is uniquely supernatural, if I say to you, you need to be saved exactly like Paul was, you would think, okay, I need to be greeted by a bright light. I need to wander around for a few days in blindness and then have something like scales drop off my eyes, all that sort of stuff. We're not going to take the literal aspects of Paul's conversion to heart for our experience, but I believe that Saul's salvation is going to show us that our conversion, our transformation is the result of the strongest power available to us, the strongest power that any of us will ever encounter, and that our conversion is going to result in an engagement in the wisest fear that we could ever live by, which is a strange combination of words and seemingly out of place from this topic that we're talking about this morning. So we will get there in mere moments. So let's go to the beginning to look at how our conversion is the result of a power and a work that is stronger than any force the world has ever experienced. Well, let's, let's first take a week off and you get all rusty. Let's look first. That's the way the phrase was supposed to come out at the weakness of Saul. Now, Saul, as we know, is going to be the great apostle Paul. But before he is the great apostle Paul, he is the great Saul of Tarsus, equal 
no, let me change that. Uh, as, as great as he was a man, he was even greater as an apostle for different reasons and with different makeup. But the man Saul was an impressive character. He was a tenacious character. He references his pedigree and his resume in Philippians 3 as he's ministering to the believers in that area and he's reminding them of some very important things. And I'm going to take his resume in isolation just for a moment. But for those of you that know your Bible and know the heart of, of the Apostle Paul, don't worry, I'm going to give, come back and give this context in a few moments. This is what he said to them in Philippians 3. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. The flesh is the person, the, the me, the, the all that I am. I have, re- I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Doesn't get any better than that. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. We've already been introduced to the Pharisees. We know that they take the letter of the law so seriously and dedicate their lives to knowing it and practicing it. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is saying my my earthly credentials to the culture and the context that I lived in couldn't be any more impeccable. He was an intense character. He was highly regarded and highly feared. So when the scripture says that he was breathing threats and murder, they took the threat seriously. It wasn't just somebody out there pounding his chest and being all bravado. It was something he could back up. And the scripture is recording that he is backing up his threats. He had an incredible tenacity towards destroying the church. Here's what I want us to just think about for our context for a moment. Often the greatest hostility comes from the weakest of foundations. Paul is a legit threat to the physical livelihoods of those that are following Christ. I keep mixing it up. Saul is a physical threat. And Saul is able to inflict incredible pain and and discomfort and upheaval and all of those things. But what we see from our text, what we already heard, is that that is leveled and decimated in mere seconds. Paul's huge show of resistance and hostility is built on nothing but his own efforts. And and Jesus is able to reduce those in a heartbeat. You and I face such incredible opposition in the culture in which we live. It seems over the last several years that is exponentially increasing. We have folks in our church and my heart goes out to them and my prayers are often focused on their stability and their survival and their provision because there are so many people in our church that their careers are at stake and they face the threat of if they just quietly live for Jesus, they're singled out. Not even trying to go out of their way to be obnoxious or telling everybody on the job about Jesus all day long. They just want to go about their work and do their thing. But at the same time, they want to live by the principles that God has given them to live by and obey. And they're still being singled out and their their careers are being threatened. And their paychecks are on the line. 
What we run into is when we, we just touch a nerve of the slightest sort that the reaction of hostility seems to be so overblown and so over the top. Where is that coming from? We have to be reminded that they are most often coming from the foundations that are really the weakest. And the reason why it stings so bad, this life in Christ that we're attempting to live, this truth that we're attempting to display, it strikes a nerve even when we're not trying to offend because truth hurts. So Paul was a man of intense character, but he was a man of incredible sincerity. There's something in the strategy that we should see here in what Paul is doing that helps us understand that he wasn't just, you know, running out crazy to, to, to squash this movement and just not thinking it through anything. He had a strategy and he had a plan because no doubt he, he thought about this in the wee hours of the night. No doubt he thought, if, if I could do this, the Lord will know I've come through for him. The Sanhedrin will respect my efforts. And so he plotted a strategy. So that sends him to Damascus which is a, a strategic advantage for the gospel if, if it catches fire. And Saul somehow knows this. And an oasis city that has tens of thousands of Jews in its population. And, and Saul already witnessed this explosion that's happening in Jerusalem. And he says, if it catches fire in Damascus from the spread and the push away, remember we said the flames are just finding uh, dry kindling to light up. Saul is recognizing this. Saul is a strategist. He says, I'm taking the fight to Damascus so we can quell this uprising that's happening. And nobody is safe from my wrath. Isn't it interesting that in a day and age where the impact of women or the testimony of women is discarded and, and thrown aside and everything that Saul in his attack is going after men and women. Luke mentions this a couple of times in, in the, uh, in the last couple of chapters. It should be a clue to us that we should be saying, well, why would women be there? They're the docile ones. They're the whatevers. But this movement was catching fire amongst the women since the time of Jesus on the earth. He was preaching a message that all could relate to whose, whose hearts were being transformed and the impact of its spread was being felt in all communities in both men and women and in children and the restoration of families. Saul sees this and he says, nobody is going to escape this punishment. It's also interesting that Saul's great mentor and teacher, Gamaliel, had just spoken to the council just a, a, a few messages ago in our, in our understanding of it. And Gamaliel said, let's just let this thing die. If you give it too much attention, it's going to catch fire and it's going to become a big thing and people will rally behind a martyr. Let's just let this thing die. Well, Saul was one of Gamaliel's students, no doubt was heavily influenced from him, but he saw that strategy isn't working, that people are following Jesus and miracles are happening. And, and then Saul witnessed Stephen's death. And he says, well, wait a second, we cannot sit by and just hope this thing goes away. This is, there's a power at work here. And yet still he was blind to the fact that it was God's moving that he was witnessing. So Jesus reveals his power to Paul and, or to Saul and levels him in an instant. I can't wait till we get to the name change. I got to do this. Stop doing this two, two name thing here. Hurry up, Paul. Get a new name. All right. 
Let's go back to our text just as a reminder in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, that's Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Had to have been a brilliant light because this is daytime. And the light is brighter than the light of the sun in the sky. And so falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The text is going to tell us that 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 question, that bright light and that interruption of Saul's plans reduces him in all of his power and his might and his zeal, his, his fame. All of that is, is literally and figuratively knocked off his horse. He comes riding in on his high horse. They're afraid of me. They've scattered. They're running. And Jesus says, nah, not really. Poof, knocks off his horse. This is, this is who God is. God displays his power when he wants. He displays his power to whom he wants. For his own purposes. This is important for us. We might sit on the other side of this. Whoa, I'm so glad I received Christ. I'm so glad that I follow him because I don't want to encounter that power. But it's good for us to remember that the same God who's able to level the greatest threat to the church at that time in just a a, a mere intervention, just a, a shining of a light and a simple question is the same God who presides over our lives. And we so often forget as we play around with our commitments to him or we kind of sometimes treat it like a take or leave kind of concept or, you know, at some point I got to dial in my faith here and I got to take these things more seriously. We forget that the same power that was able to do that to the mighty Saul is the same one that we often toy around with. Saul had learned his lessons so that the great apostle Paul was made great because of his humility that he walked in. Because around the text that I had read earlier from Philippians 3, that resume that said, this is how great I am in my flesh, and these are all the things that I've accomplished, and this is how I was born, and all these kinds of things. Before and after that are these kinds of statements, where he says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision, that is those of the heart who have been identified with the Lord, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. He finishes his resume by saying, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The apostle Paul saw what Saul had to reconcile. That is all of these accomplishments, all of this might that I think I have is nothing next to the holiness and the brilliance of God. Paul was basically looking back and saying, I had no choice but to be humbled. I I faced a, I, I encountered a force that I couldn't do battle with. I couldn't go toe to toe with. I, this humility that you see in me now, isn't me trying every day. It's not me waking up going, remember, Paul, you're just a wee little man who's at the service. He was wrecked and leveled. Probably not much temptation for the rest of his life to think he was anything. So Jesus gets Paul's instant attention to where, again, Saul, sorry, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And I, 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 I don't know. I'm not a Bible translator, but it seems like from the text and also as you translate the word Lord, you can also have it mean just sir, a title of respect. 
So I don't know that our Bible should necessarily have a capital L on Lord as though he knew that this was the God of heaven. But he says, who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? So Jesus instantly, you see how all these things are happening in an instant? It's good for us to slow this down, but this is all happening like this. Jesus gives him instant clarification. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you just try? We're, we're not in his context. We, we don't have the same dust on our sandals and stuff that Saul had at the time, but just try to imagine. He's dedicated his life to be being so singularly focused on a task. It culminated in him being able to see clearly, this is my calling. I have to preserve the law and the temple from this upstart whatever who think they've, they've got the Messiah and they're going to make a big deal out of him. And so Saul finds his purpose. And if you've been around driven people, all you need to do is just give them an ounce of purpose and they make something huge out of it. Saul is on fire for this mission. He is equipped for it. He is resourced. He's dedicated. And in one sentence, he is leveled and dismantled. I'm Jesus. The one that you didn't think rose from the dead, this bright light hanging in the sky, blinding you right now is he. I don't know how you wrap your head around that. I don't know how other than maybe being struck blind and needing three days to really chill out and think about all of this. I don't know how you wrap your head around all that's taken place. And again, I think that this is a lingering effect that Saul, now Paul, will feel for the rest of his ministry, which will keep him in a place of surrender and submission before his Lord. I think the text tells us that he was in complete shock. And later on, we'll see that as he uh, kind of came to and was able to see that, that the text says that he wasn't eating or drinking. I don't think he was like, oh, this is an important time for me to fast. I don't think his body knew what to do with all that was happening. This is a real human reaction to a supernatural event. And he's instantly thinking, Jesus is alive. And Jesus, whether or not Saul heard this at the time, but he sends us a message by saying that you are persecuting me because Saul could have gotten out of it with the logistics. Well, not really you. Somebody else did that. I'm going after the people that believe in you. And what is Jesus saying? If you're going after them, you're going after me. Again, I go back to our reaction in culture now where we're facing some severe consequences for standing for the Lord in our society. And we sometimes wonder, does God understand how much of a sacrifice this is? Does he know what this is going to cost me? It's statements like this, these simple little statements that remind us that the loving Lord sees every attack on his children and he takes it personally. Yes, the same Jesus who is able to stop a great antagonist in his tracks is the one who has your back, who sees your circumstances, who sees the things that you are being led and called to stand up to in the places that you live. And he takes it all personally. You might say, well, why doesn't he do something about it then? We have to also trust that the same Lord who sees it and feels it has a plan and has the knowledge of what will be. And we just need to trust. 
I get this from so many other passages of scripture, this command that Jesus takes, but right what follows here again, mighty Saul charging. I'm, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's for a good purpose because Jesus instantly shows him who's in charge. Whack blindness. Get up, Saul. I'm going to send you to the city and tell you what you need to do next. It's that simple. It's that matter of fact. This isn't this kind of exchange where Saul's going, oh, I see the light now. And now I just want to hear your voice, Lord. What am I to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Why don't you go off into the city and serve me? The Lord is leveling the antagonist and the persecutor of his church. And he's putting him in his place. And he says, all right, get up off your butt, dust yourself off. I have work for you to do. He's, he's in charge. He's commanding him. This is what a risen Jesus demands, not only of Saul, but of you and me. I'm convinced that if we witness Jesus in bodily form after his resurrection, we'd be like, I don't know how you do this. How do you say no to that? Who else has ever beat death? Here we are some couple thousand years later, and it's become a part of our American culture. We believe in Calvary's cross. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. This is starting to wane. I understand that it's not in every institution anymore. But culturally speaking, we're so used to the message that we've forgotten that a resurrected Lord changes everything. If Jesus beats death, that means he forgives sins. That means he has full control and command of our lives. And that means he knows what's going on and that we can trust him for his leadership. All of these things were occurring to Saul in a split second. Okay, he's alive. So I picked the wrong team. He's alive, which means he's got power. He's alive, which means he's got command. I'll just do whatever you say I need to do. Not only is Jesus our savior and forgiveness of our sins, but he is our Lord. He is the commander of our lives and he is a beautiful commander to submit to. So let's just take a moment before we look at Ananias, our next character in our text here. Let's just look in kind of a way of review here. What is Saul's conversion, this most historic conversion in the history of the church? How does it remind us of ours? What are the elements of our conversion story or testimony that we can see coming uh, coming from Saul's experience here? The first thing is that we saw that while Saul was in direction, while he was in pursuit of sinning against Jesus, that's when Jesus interrupted him. We would say it like this, like Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That our salvation did not wait for you and I to stop sinning, to clean ourselves up, but instead our salvation was presented to us as a way to stop sinning, as a way to pay for that which we couldn't pay for ourselves. Please don't hear me say that we don't repent from our sins and we don't say, I'm sorry for all that I've done. I recognize the weight of it. I know that it put you on the cross and, and please forgive me for it. That's not what I'm saying. But so often we think that religious duties or, or doing good deeds will clean the slate so that God will finally hear us and say, okay, I, I'll make you one of my children. That isn't the way it worked for Saul. He was actively chasing down Christians to kill them. Jesus said, no. I've got other plans for you. You are now one of mine. Poof. We don't clean up before coming to Jesus. He does all the cleaning. We come to him in surrender. We don't want to wait until he has to smack us off our horse with a bright light. 
while he's gently calling us, we want to respond to him. We also see in Saul's conversion that it's through the conviction of our own sin. Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? He brought Saul. We've been saying this a lot on repeat lately. He brought Saul to the place of seeing his sin so he would know what he was guilty of. So he would know what he's leaving at the foot of the cross. That we, we come to terms with the fact, yes, I deserve hell. Jesus in his mercy and grace is offering me something I don't deserve. I couldn't have earned. I only get it by his grace. This is what the spirit has come to do. John, uh, John told us this and in Jesus words that the spirit would come to convict the world of sin. We have to face our sin in order to leave it at the cross. Also, I would say that Saul's conversion shows us that all of our salvation is centered on the resurrection of Christ. It is the central thing that that humbled Saul to repentance was that Jesus was alive. He couldn't fight anymore because truth was that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the only hope any of us have for the forgiveness of our sins. If we serve a dead God, then we don't have any confidence that our sins are forgiven We might as well just go about doing what we want. That's what Paul wrote later on in the New Testament. Also, the important thing here is to see that even though he was only freshly saved, Paul was given an immediate mission, much like you and me. We're not saved by the good things that we do, but we are saved to do the good things that give God glory. Why wouldn't we after all that he's done for us? And there isn't this delay period or this ramp up period. There are certain things that that take place over time. I'm often using this phrase called an incubation period. It's like, you know, I first come to Christ. Don't necessarily run back to the old crowd right away. You may not be strong enough to withstand all of that temptation and all that difficulty. I don't know your circumstances, but there's times where wisdom, as far as not doing something right away, may come into effect until you're more mature in Christ. But God doesn't put you on the bench and say, I have no use for you yet. I, I, am, I, I believe this, that even though it's a little bit um, uh, uneducated, even though it's a little bit uh, misguided in its passion, I believe that the church is largely sustained by the energy of new converts. You, if you remember back to when you first came to Christ, you went and told everybody about it. I hope you did. And, and you told people and you look back years later, you've got your arguments down packed now. You, you have a better understanding. You're a little bit more patient. You're a little bit more mature. And you're like, oh man, I was making a fool of myself. I was just like showing up at my aunt's house saying, you need to accept Jesus. You know, who knows what you were doing? But most of the time we look back at the early conversion years as something that, that, that maybe needed to be matured out of. But I really think that this is part of all that Jesus has done to sustain his church is that that energy and that passion is not something that requires a waiting period for. This, this story is telling us there's two important questions, the most important questions that you and I should ask. One is, who are you, Lord? If you get to know the biblical Jesus, it will change and transform your life. Not the one I explained to you, not the one culture is telling you exists. The one that exists in the Bible and is alive today, if you meet the true Jesus, it will lead you to the second question basically as a, as a natural next step. And what do you want me to do? 
This is what we see in the conversion of Saul. Now, I told you that it would lead to a bit of a strange phrasing here, but that our conversion, we'd understand that our conversion results in the practicing of the wisest fear. This is the only time we're going to hear about Ananias. This is not the same Ananias and Sapphira that we heard about a few chapters ago. This guy is only showing up for a moment, but he shows up in a really cool transaction. I mean, if this was your one honorable mention in the scriptures, this is the one you want. Because Ananias is going to put things on display for us that we can relate to as humans. But there's also some things that be like, man, if I could have been that guy, it would have been amazing. But why am I talking about this wisest fear? Because these are really wise and fear in our culture today are on two opposite ends of the spectrum. Our world lives and operates in fear. We are freaking out about outcomes of certain things. We are afraid of threats from disasters or sicknesses or cancel culture or what our identity really means in this world. We have all kinds of phobias and fears, even if they're not officially labeled. They have a tendency to manage and, 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 and dominate our lives. This is the culture in which we live. And unless we think because we go to church that we're above all these things, the reality is as many of us live by fear in so many ways too. So it's countercultural to link a word like fear with a word like wisdom. But what we see in the scriptures is those two are inextricably linked. As I was even uh, catching up on some of my reading in Job this morning, it came out to me that in Job's response to all of his friends and their terrible counsel and everything, Job had said that the, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So let's define our terms. We've got a fear of mankind, we've got a fear of people, and we've got a fear of God. What do I mean by a fear of mankind? This is not just like, oh, they're going to hit me, though. There's some of that for sure. It's the making the things of created man, either those threats like Saul was breathing on the church or their opinions, their acceptance of me or the pleasures or the distractions that they offer me, making those things more important than the worship of the one true God. That's what the fear of man is, biblically speaking. It's really a problem of misplaced worship. In other words, instead of fixing my eyes on the one who is in control of it, the one who's powerful enough to knock Saul off his horse and just say, okay, I, I, captain, I see that you're Lord and I want to know what you want from me. Instead, it's somebody who gets more um, whipped up or cares more about what others can do to me or what they might see in me or the possibility that they might reject me. Rather than how God sees me or how he perceives or receives me or even protects my soul from hell. So we get back into our text to see how Ananias is wrestling with this for a moment, but then gives us a good example of how to move beyond it. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And he said to him. Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Dum, bum, bum. The headlines were out already. Twitter was blowing up with all of Saul's uh, accomplishments at this point. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias came, uh, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. You, 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 want, you want, want me to go t- t- touch him? 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is asking the Lord, did you say that Saul was praying A-Y or is he still praying E-Y? That's the clarification he wants, which is an understandable fear. If I'm in Ananias' situation, I want a little bit more uh, confidence as well. I'm not necessarily running into the belly of the beast, so to speak, in order to prove my name or anything like that. This is a very understandable. This is where we live. We don't see all of God's strength in, in our vision. We don't know all of the outcomes until they take place. I was texting back and forth with one of our dear friends in the ministry who we'll be seeing in a few weeks, and I'm just not going to get into names and locations because of the internet feed and stuff, but you'll know, and we see him every year, and he comes and he tells us the stories and the movements of God around the world. And as he's texting me pictures of the very scary to me, and I'm sure to him, scary places that he's ministering the gospel in right now, it shows him with a, a bodyguard with full armor and a gun next to him. And he says, I need, I need the, uh, the spirit of God, not a bodyguard. And, and the locations and things that he was sending pictures of, and I'm just thinking, Lord, how do you get that kind of confidence to go there and do those things? Ananias is saying, are you sure this is where we're supposed to go? So instead, rather than living in the fear of man, making the threats and opinions and the, and the pleasure seekings of, of mankind more important than his worship of God, Ananias had developed and matured in character and in his trust in the Lord. And so he doesn't stay there very long. He stays there long enough for us to know that's a real human experience. But the spirit within him moved him out of that that log jam in his heart. And he instead moves to a wiser fear, the fear of the living God. And God is speaking specifics to Ananias to calm his fear. This is really incredible. The same Jesus who just knocked Saul off the horse is the same one who could have said, Ananias, Ananias, why are you hesitating on my command? Just go and do it already. He doesn't do it, does he? He says, Saul's seen in a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him. Could you imagine being him and just going, you mean you showed him who I am and what my name is and I, I count that much to this process that you would include that much detail? I think there's an irony here. I, something I just geeked out on a little bit was I was looking at this text is that all of this relates around vision. The vision that the mighty Saul now no longer has because he's struck blind and the vision that Jesus sees the whole playing field and is moving all the chess pieces and he sees everything playing out the way he wants and the way he's commanded. And so he's giving Ananias a little bit of that borrowed vision. He goes, this is what I'm seeing and you need to see it too. That Saul is waiting for you by name. He's giving Ananias these, cur these details to give him the courage to obey. We might say, well, then that's the kind of detail I need. Before I do something, I want Jesus to speak to me specifically about. But he's recording it in the story of Ananias so that we can trust this is how he moves and how he works. We don't need to question him because it's recorded for us in Scripture. The determination that you and I need to obey God's voice is greatly aided by the knowledge we have of his word. 
This is why in church, we are a broken record about knowing God's word by reading it, studying it, ruminating on it with your friends in the, in the church, being a part of groups that break it down and to try to process it in everyday life. Because the Bible is the thing that reveals God's character to us. It gives us our calling in ministry. It shows us how equipped we are to perform that calling. And it promises that God will be with us every step of the way. So going back to what does the fear of God really look like, we, we get a bit of a picture of what the fear of man looks like. So what's the alternative? What's the other side of that coin? If you struggle with this, which means if you're a human being, um, if you struggle with this balance between the fear of God and the fear of man and you're looking for a good resource, uh, if you've got a pen out, but I can email it to you later if you're interested. But a man named Ed Welch wrote an incredible book that I've been in back into recently uh, called When People Are Big and God is Small and talking about how we are more afraid of man's reactions and their uh, power over us than the power of the Lord in our lives and his calling on us. How he defines this is that the fear of God really is a spectrum of attitudes. On the one end, we have a fear of God when we are still in our sin, when we are still away from him, that we have this fear that looks a lot like terror. Like, ah, don't, don't smack me dead because the holiness of God and the righteousness of God is able to and rightly deserves to do that to us. That's what God does to sin. That's why the cross exists. So, yes, apart from Christ, we rightly should fear our future. But with Jesus as our Savior, our fear grows in its expression. It becomes something like a reverent submission because our sins have been forgiven by no earning of our own. And this leads us into a practice of obedience that looks like worship. It looks like reliance. It looks like trusting. When he says go, we start to go. Yes, it's a fear, but it's not a, always a terror sort of, don't strike me down, Lord. He's promised not to in Christ. But he's still the one who accomplishes it all. He's still the one who knocks the mighty off their horse. And he's not one to be trifled with. He shares with Ananias his plan in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I just want to say this in passing. We can leave the text up. I'll try to be quick. My first reaction when I see verse 16, Jesus saying, I sh I'll show him. This is the tone I hear Jesus saying, don't, don't, don't you worry. I know he's caused you guys a lot of stress. So I'll show him how much he needs to suffer for your, for, for his uh, atrocities sake. That's not what Jesus is saying. If we believe the gospel is that all the wrath of God, all the punishment of our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross, we have to take uh, out of the equation that Jesus is going to then make Saul pay for all of his efforts towards the church. Uh, humanly speaking, I want Jesus to say, don't worry, he's getting his dues coming up. But the reality is all of us are Saul all of us were against God. All of us deserve all of God's wrath, but we got his forgiveness. And so Saul gets all the forgiveness in this moment that you and I get. We have to look at this as plan, as strategy that Jesus is saying he is going to suffer much because I have a plan for him. And we know from Paul's ministry that, that his suffering is going to put him in very unique audience with those who need to encounter 
the power of Jesus Christ. So let's not read this statement as somehow Jesus saying, I'm going to get him back. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And then, I'll insert then, taking food, he was strengthened. We're just about done here. Let me just ask a question. Why did God need a middleman? Jesus knocked Saul off the horse. Have I said that about 8,000 times in this message already? Jesus had direct contact with voice, vision, with the people he was trying to change. I shouldn't say trying. He did change. Forgive me, Lord. And yet he still goes with a middleman to go meet Saul and do something kind of incredible. There's probably a lot of reasons that I'm not smart enough to all pull out, but I did see a few of them. I think first is to continue in the humbling process of Saul. If, if someone that you know should not and, and, and you wouldn't expect to come forgive you does, isn't it immediately humbling and reducing and say, you don't, I don't deserve your forgiveness. And yet they come anyway. Ananias, no doubt, because of his leadership in the church being singled out by the Lord, probably would have been on Saul's highest priority list, one of his most wanted. And he's the one to come deliver the forgiveness of Jesus and say, I've come to lay hands on you and call you brother. It's amazing. And then he comes to just comfort Saul because Saul is wrecked and lonely and despairing and blind. And just to have someone come and put human hands on your shoulders and say, I'm here. Is incredibly moving. But also, I think, to include Ananias. We, we heard this, I think, at our um, uh, time around the Lord's table in, uh, in Floyd's talk. Uh, we see this in the scriptures in which were read to us that we are the instruments of God, that he does what he does to include us in the process so that we can be used, somehow mysteriously blessed, to be used in all of God's works. Imagine being the one who got to welcome the apostle Paul into the fellowship to be able to look back and be like, you know, that humble brag sort of thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was around a couple decades ago. I remember when we welcomed him in, yeah, all that writing that you're reading now and that's transforming the church. Oh yeah. I was there laid hands on him. I mean, I don't know how you wouldn't say things like that. Maybe Ananias is just a better man than me. Imagine being the one who got to baptize him. Ananias would have never been in that position had he not got over his fear and obeyed the Lord. As I said before, you, you smell it coming, but there's a great commercial for baptism in here. And so many of you responded. We're so excited. We're starting the process and we've made some changes. And I know Pastor Tom went into detail. And so baptism is going to look a little bit different for us, but we think it's more participatory and, and more confirming, if that's the right word. But at the same time, it's just nice to see so many stepping forward. So you definitely wouldn't be alone because that's a new, normal human reaction and fear uh, that there would be many who are joining you. So you need to consider that. But obviously, we can see what Saul did. As soon as he regained his sight, he didn't say, gosh, I'm famished. I need to eat something. He said, I need to, as Pastor Gary said, I need to put that wedding ring on of my faith. 
And I need to do this act to show that he's the one that rescued me and transformed me. That's what the Holy Spirit does is he leads us into places of obedience. So who's the person you've given up on? Who's the person that you're like, I'm just tired of hoping they'll come to Christ. They're too far gone. I'm afraid of them. They're antagonistic or scary. Be reminded this morning that Jesus' power is far greater than man's. The question for all of us is, have we gone through a radical conversion? Have we transformed from one form to the next? Has Jesus made us? Is he making everything so different in our lives? Sometimes it's hard to tell. It's like, well, I go to church or I get a little bit of Jesus, but I wouldn't say there's a radical transformation. I don't know if I've put on a different pair of glasses or I can see the world and culture through the biblical lenses. If he has done that in your life, who are you telling? If he hasn't, then what are you waiting for? Do you think you can stand up long to the power of Jesus and resist him? I've said it before that our world is starving for distinction and we want to know if anything is different anymore. This church going thing, this following Jesus thing is, does it really make a difference in our lives? I got to be honest with you. The longer I do this, I have to ask the Lord, Lord, what's different about me? I feel like I make so much of this just so easy. What's, what are you calling me into that really shows this guy's really following Christ? We're looking instead in all kinds of empty and meaningless and dark places as a culture. Only find that it's the same lies over and over. They're looking for something different. I believe that we are in a time of harvest in our culture today. That Jesus, as he's presented biblically, is refreshing to people as they meet him. He brings life of true conversion. And he transforms us from a life of empty inwardness to freedom from looking upward. And he can radically transform our hearts and and set us on new paths. And the only thing keeping us from that is a surrender to his call. Would you stand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are in the arresting business. Saul thought that he could arrest those that followed you, and yet you locked him up. And you gave him all the freedom he ever craved and needed in that incarceration. So I thank you, Lord, for how you do what you do in strength, but also in gentleness. Lord, you've had to apply both in our lives. There's times where you've been extremely firm with us because we've been stubborn or resistant. There's times you've been extremely gentle because we've been broken or needy. And so, Lord, you are all things. So I pray, Lord, for the ears and the hearts of those in this room and those watching on a screen, Lord, that if there's a place of surrender they haven't been led to yet, if there's a place of trust that they haven't given over to you, Lord, yet, I pray that in your spirit you would give them the strength to do so. Everything changes in our lives when we move forward in obedience, but we only do it by your strength. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.